There is no reforming the schools. The options are survival or escape. But this realization actually marks the beginning of a new and fulfilling educational journey. For both students and parents. Welcome to the School Sucks Project. Our mission is to provide clarity, support, and empowerment to parents who are concerned and frustrated with the content and culture of the public schools. We achieve this mission through the creation of educational and entertaining media and the development of supportive communities. Continuously building a more detailed picture of what genuine self-directed education can look like. We are determined to pursue this mission because we understand the dangers of indoctrination, toxic school culture, and short-sighted education policies. And we deeply value intrinsically motivated learning, autonomy, and choice in education. And please remember the three important facts we first tried to share when we started in 2009. The schools will not improve. Higher education will not improve. The political conversation about these institutions will not improve. Only we can improve. So let's begin. There have been many stories about characters discovering that reality isn't real at all. This isn't real. What is real? But where did this idea come from? Hello, someone there? For that, we have to go back over 2,000 years to the famed philosopher Plato. Why is this story still so captivating, and what can we learn from it? The Allegory of the Cave is a selection from a larger work called The Republic, written about 375 BCE by the Greek philosopher Plato. It remains a seminal piece of writing with profound philosophical questions about the nature of human perception. To illustrate these ideas, Plato uses an allegory, which is a form of storytelling that uses symbolism to represent larger or complex ideas. So, what happens in Plato's Allegory of the Cave? It begins with a group of prisoners who have lived their entire lives in a cave. They are chained to a wall, unable to turn their heads, so all they see is a wall onto which shadows are projected. Above and behind them is a fire that other men use to cast these shadows. They hold up statues and figures of animals, occasionally making noises, like a puppet show in silhouette. Because this is all the prisoners have known, the shadows are their perceived reality. One of these prisoners is set free and turns to see the fire behind them. The prisoner is told that the shadows were merely an illusion. The brightness of the fire hurts his eyes as he struggles to perceive this new reality. The prisoner is then dragged fully out of the cave and into the glaring sunlight. Once the prisoner's eyes have adjusted, however, he will slowly realize that this reality is far more real than the one he knew before. Instead of the mere shadow of a tree, he sees an actual tree. The prisoner then returns to share this enlightenment with his fellow prisoners. But as he re-enters the cave, he is effectively blind once again, for his eyes are no longer accustomed to the darkness. Seeing his blindness, his fellow prisoners assume that he has completely lost his mind. They mock him for leaving the cave in the first place, and vow to kill him if he tries to make them do the same. There ends the story. Hello, this is Brett. Welcome back to The Essential School Sucks. Today is Tuesday, May 31st, 2022. At the beginning there, I tacked on a very brief synopsis of Plato's Allegory of the Cave, 
just in case anybody listening is unfamiliar with that story, I really feel like the world would be a much better place if everyone who wanted to participate in any kind of political, philosophical, educational conversation was fully aware of the allegory of the cave. I also add it because it's kind of the punchline for the monologue in the show that you are about to hear, recorded all the way back in March of 2018. And I'd hate for that punchline to come at the end of, uh, I would say, a very good, albeit a little bit angry, monologue and have people in the audience who didn't know what I was talking about. We see the connection between the schools and the allegory of the cave, obviously. But in the month of June 2022, we're also going to see how that relation spills out into the larger political conversation in the world. We're just a week beyond another extremely tragic school shooting in Uvalde, Texas. The show you're going to hear today was recorded in the fallout from the Parkland shooting over four years ago. And while we certainly live in a very different world today, there is definitely a familiar echo in how the story is being approached. A bipartisan group of senators is working on a potential compromise on gun control. Meanwhile, thousands of people protested today outside the NRA convention in Houston. Eyewitness News reporter Carlos Granda is live now with the latest. Carlos? Well, Ellen, there is growing demand for lawmakers to do something to stop mass shootings. Polls show a majority of Americans support background checks and other gun safety measures. This comes as the NRA is holding its convention in Houston. They came to make their voices heard. Outside the convention in Houston, thousands of protesters, a rally against gun violence. From the air, you can see the size of the crowd. Among the speakers, Texas candidate for governor, Beto O'Rourke. Let us commit ourselves right now to doing the hardest things that we can think of, because nothing about this will be easy. Up to 80,000 people are expected to attend the convention. The mayor of Houston says organizers should have considered postponing the event. He stressed there needs to be changes to our laws. This is a situation, a problem that's not going to go away, just wishing it goes away. Among the speakers, David Hogg, who survived the 2018 Parkland, Florida high school shooting. But even if it's just one law that saves one life, be it here in Texas or in Washington, D.C., we must focus on where we can find common ground. The guest you're going to hear in this show is a controversial one. His name is Thaddeus Russell. He is a former academic. He is the author of the phenomenal, thought-provoking, renegade history of the United States. He's the host of the Unregistered Podcast and the founder of Renegade University. He was one of the most frequent and divisive guests that we had throughout the run of School Sucks. I think our first collaboration was all the way back in 2013. That is somebody who gave me some of the best advice I ever received. You'll hear a little bit of it in the show today. It's advice for us all. And he was also the person sitting across from me in some of the most infuriating arguments I ever had. As a historian, Thad was somebody who helped me broaden my thinking tremendously. As a thinker and an interlocutor, he is somebody who helped me welcome the challenge of having more conversations, even public ones with people who held very, very different worldviews from my own. And for better or for worse, he is definitely somebody who really didn't shy away from any subject or exploration. I really don't know what you know about Thaddeus Russell. So I just want to add this disclaimer that he never appeared on the show 
because I was like, wow, I really totally agree with everything this guy says. It was much more like the opposite, but he was there for some of the best conversations I ever got to have. So all that being said, I want to make it clear that the discussion you're about to hear is not free of controversy. But I still feel to this day, even though you might hear a few things that aren't really relevant anymore, we might not stand by anymore, it is a very important, bigger picture look at a lot of the discourse that happens in America around school shootings. But much more importantly, the discourse that doesn't happen. While I do think it is important to approach the subject compassionately and understand that every single one of these events is unique, and we shouldn't try to collectivize them all and make rules for why this happens, which also means making rules or supporting rules for what should be done about it. Many times in the past, the conservative response to these tragedies was arm the teachers, for example. You don't hear that talking point much anymore, and I think it really shows you the escalation of the culture war, doesn't it? Like, you're not going to hear any conservative saying, you know, all these elementary school teachers I keep seeing on libs of TikTok, why don't they have guns? But we also have to acknowledge, back to the allegory of the cave there, the young people who are being asked to be on the front lines of the debate about this subject are not getting a full and accurate picture of the issue. And it's not being presented to the public either. And there are very few politicians on either side that would want it to be. And in none of the conversations that you've heard so far at the end of May or what you probably will hear all throughout June, is there going to be any talk or hardly any talk? The actual safety of gun-free zones, there's not going to be hardly any talk about mental health and worsening mental health in the United States, especially over the last couple of years. It was a problem that factored very heavily into this conversation that we had again four years ago. And you're not going to hear anything about the toxic environment of the schools themselves. We understand that in this Uvalde case, the shooter had nothing to do with his victims as far as a peer group was concerned. But so many cases, school violence, certainly school bullying, is at least partially the result of people being forced into the same environment and forced to interact. So this show that you're about to hear actually has an arc to it that I really like. When I started listening back to this a few days ago, I really wasn't happy with my tone. I really wasn't sure I wanted to share that tone with you as I'm trying to put the best school sucks voice forward here. A lot of the anger early on in the show is directed to the people who are trying to use events like Sandy Hook or Parkland or Uvalde towards some kind of political agenda. And in that effort, they mobilized the angst, and unfortunately, I hate to say it, often the ignorance of school children, all the way up to David Hogage, to give momentum to their cause. Thus, the debates are framed in overly simplistic ways, where so many of the important factors are left out. And to somebody like me, who has always tried to feel and express a belief in the wisdom and the capability of young people, to see them kind of cheated out of true understanding so they could be used to some political end, it's pretty upsetting. And a lot of people at that time, and I'm sure at this time, get what I'm saying and understand that feeling. So the payoff at the end of the arc, Dad said, why do you care so much about what these people do? And the simple answer might seem like, because they're ruining the world. 
But in this conversation, especially towards the end, there's a lot of encouragement to check your own emotional investment. And even if you are emotionally invested in something, to check how it is influencing your thinking, that level of emotional investment, and how to find serenity and define a sphere of control, a sphere of influence where you actually can make a difference. You already know my answer. Get your kids out of these buildings. These buildings, as we see again and again in so many different ways, are a place where you and they have no real control or influence and therefore probably not the best place to be spending your formative years. Please stay tuned until the end of the show to learn more about how you can support the School Sucks Project and help our message reach more of the people who need it right now. Before we begin, I'm going to play you a clip from this past week of an old voice, David Hogg, who I will repeatedly refer to in the show from four years ago as David Hogue, just to eliminate any confusion. And I promise after today's show, you won't hear his name again in this Essential School Sucks series. But he is organizing another March for Our Lives event. This is what inspired the show you're about to hear back in 2018. It's going to be held in just a couple weeks or less on June 11th. And there's many clips like this on YouTube from the last week of him, all with him working from the same script, which is also the same script that he was given to work from four years ago. Unfortunately, especially when we consider the persistence of this problem in the schools. This is The Essential School Sucks, number eight, Gun Play. Originally released March 27th, 2018. As podcast number 552, hashtag enough with Thaddeus Russell. And that will begin right after David's final and kind of disturbing line when you look at the big picture. Here we go. A mass shooting survivor is demanding change after 19 children and two adults were killed at Robb Elementary School in Texas. David Hogg, a survivor of the shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, is urging Americans to take action in the wake of Tuesday's massacre. He tweeted, quote, no more debates or thoughts and prayers. We need bipartisan action. Hogg attended Marjorie Stone in Douglas High School back in 2018 when a gunman opened fire in the school, killing 17 people. Following the tragedy, he and other survivors founded March for Our Lives, a movement dedicated to ending gun violence. And David Hogg joins us now. David uh, thanks so much for taking the time today on what I imagine is a difficult day for you, too. You're a survivor of one of the deadliest mass shootings in American history, now in the wake of yet another mass shooting, one that is somehow deadlier than the one that you unfortunately experienced. How are you coping today? What are some of the thoughts and the feelings that come up for you? You know, I'm basically trying to uh, check in on people that I care about as much as I can in between interviews and between conversations with our team, because we're planning a lot of stuff right now. Um, but there are certain moments when you have to realize that, you know, uh, I've been screaming and shouting at the top of my lungs for years, uh, about this stuff. I was in fact, in front of, uh, Senator Chuck Schumer's uh, office in New York just a couple months ago demanding a vote on universal background checks where I brought body bags in front and said, we need to do this. Um, and his staff said, you know, well, it's just like we just gave me excuse after excuse after excuse after excuse. And I said, look, like people are dying every day here. You've got to do something. And uh, it it's really hard to cope with this. You know, it's not easy. But the reality is 
Americans need to stand up and do the job of our politicians when they can't because we need to lead by example. And that's what I'm trying to do just as one citizen to do my part of one of 300 plus million Americans to make our, our union more perfect. And so what are you doing, David? You posted several tweets yesterday, not uh, only pushing for action, but uh, but also uh, promising that, quote, uh, we're going to do something, as you as you put it. Uh, so what what yeah. needs to change exactly and, and how are you working to, to try to change it? Yeah, well, I, I think the first thing is, look, we need to stop debating this issue. We need to have a conversation as Americans, not as Democrats or Republicans, but about what can we do to protect our kids and our older people, too, and people of all ages, right? Um, because grandmas were taken away in Buffalo, and that's not being talked about you know, nearly enough either. None of these shootings are. The fact that we have the equivalent of a mass shooting like this happening every day in the United States in the form of individual shootings is unacceptable, and it can't be prevented. And really what I want to get at is I've had many conversations, probably hundreds if not thousands over the years, including with people that have been armed outside of, pro, outside of protests or rallies that we've had that vehemently disagree with me, even people who call me a crisis actor. Um, and I talked to them, and I have not had a single conversation where I was not able to at least get people to understand that while we disagree, we don't need to hate each other and that we all want the same thing here. We don't want kids dying in their schools or their communities on a daily basis. And I, I urge Congress, the House, the Senate to do the same and focus on what we can agree on. That's why I think this time can be different. When we started in 2018, we didn't, the NRA had control of the House, the Senate, and the presidency. We've now taken all three. Time to get a gun. Hey, everybody, this is Brett. Thanks for joining me. Today is Monday, March 26th. And there's two ideas that I'm trying to drive home. Number one, the display that we saw over the weekend, the display that we've been seeing for over a month now following Parkland, is designed as a provocation. It is designed to upset people. Even I honestly believe even the way children are being presented in this issue is designed to galvanize and mobilize the opposition to gun control to generate conflict, to be divisive, because it is politically useful. In the description of this show, I wrote, This past weekend, hundreds of thousands of ill-informed teenagers participated in a nationwide accidental fundraiser for the NRA. So even though that sounds like it might have been, you know, a failure of March for Our Lives, oh no. Rules for Radicals, number one. Pick an issue, polarize it. It's children, innocent children, versus the NRA. More on that in the show today. The second point, even if doing so creates upset or offense in other people, I think it is really important to stand up to the left's effort to use children as shields. We've all seen the movie where there's the gunfight, and the terrorist or the badman picks up a child, and then they glance at our hero as if to say, what kind of protagonist would be heartless and reckless enough to shoot at me now? 
In real life, ISIS and other terrorist groups use this tactic, and so does the American political left. They're not doing it to protect their bodies from bullets, but to protect their ideas from rational criticism. So that intro was just my way of saying, yeah, I hope you don't mind if I'm just not receptive to that. From the discourse, if you want to call it discourse, that I've seen on this subject, the school shootings and what to do about them, the CNN town hall is an especially good example of this. The goal is not understanding of the issue. In fact, throughout 2015, 2016, 2017, it seems to be dying down now. Uh, we watched what was happening on college campuses. There was a lot of like live action role playing. You know, we're seeing it now with high school students where people are, you know, keeping themselves away from information enough so they have the ability to pretend that they're participating in something that is as significant as like the abolition movement or the civil rights movement. Martin Luther King's name evoked several times over the past weekend. If you look at this issue, fantasy play is almost all anybody can do because so many of these things, especially on the policy side, have been made so legally and logistically complex Nobody really wants to understand it. They just want to feel like they're doing something good, and they'll take the simplest explanation to be able to harness that feeling. During the CNN town hall, Marco Rubio tried to explain the complexity uh, on the policy side of the gun issue. He just got booed. The crowd said, we aren't really looking for like a um, comprehensive understanding of what's happening here. What we're, what we're after is kind of like this game of Pokemon. We got to catch them all. Right now, we're working on the AR-15. If somebody says that and ban in the same sentence, we all go wild. Assault rifle, same thing with assault rifle. We just sort of reflexively cheer when we hear talk about banning those things. We boo. If you say there's thousands of other guns that can do the same thing that we aren't even on our radar that we've never even heard of, we boo that. So while acting out their role as the smart and sophisticated moral voices on this issue, these people are using the exact same rigor in their thinking as the people at Trump rallies chanting, build that wall. The depth of their investigation is surface only. It's a focus on what's tangible, what's visible. It requires no thought. But I was really surprised slash not surprised by the neglect of a discussion about mental health. In what was probably the most prominent forum on this, which again was the CNN town hall. Now, before you get into to the mental health aspect of this, there's all kinds of politics related to quotas and school crime reporting and self-reporting of mental illness that are really, really complicated and also have, you know, at the root, government creative problems. So we've talked on School Sucks before about zero tolerance. And over the last five or six years, there were efforts to reduce occurrences of the school to prison pipeline, which mostly affects minorities. But obviously... It's never about addressing root causes because that would have just devastating implications for the institution of public school and the unhealthiness of that environment. All that would have to be examined if you're going after root causes. We don't do that. We just uh, change the way we report crime and we develop quotas. This is true. This happened in Florida where each month when um, a certain number of – usually I think my, this mostly applied to minority students – were arrested for violent crimes, misdemeanors, property crimes – there just wouldn't be any reporting anymore. The language would be changed, right? So in all of these cries, how does a mentally ill person get a gun? Well, the people who are saying that are relying on authorities who aren't reporting important details in that case. It's very political. Nicholas Cruz, despite everything we know about him, was falling through the cracks in the mental health system in all sorts of ways. And I'll talk about that in a minute. But in the CNN town hall, mental health was only discussed in a way 
where it's stigmatized. Like, some people are crazy, and the rest of us are just fine. Overlooking the idea that mental health is something that almost all of us have to pursue, usually throughout our entire lives, and that that's a personal journey, and it has to be self-directed, it has to be internally motivated. But that's not what we learn from school and television. Authorities will ensure the mental health of the children, of school children, and people who want to buy guns. We must wait for the authorities. School's the number one lesson. And that's why these teenagers berating politicians to take some kind of vague action at a stage CNN event now counts as heroic activism. And on that topic of self-help and mental health, all of the work that people have been doing online for free for over a decade now to help people lead better, more mentally healthy lives, none of what people can do to help themselves enters into this at all. Instead, the conversation is directed into the problem of supply and demand for mental health services. If the conversation goes there at all, right? Because all of the particulars of the problems in mental health services, that is such an enormous headache when compared to the other available conclusion that the NRA gives money to Republican politicians so crazy people can shoot your kids in a school. Emergency department visits for suicidal thoughts more than doubled between 2006 and 2013. I was looking at Merritt Hawkins' data, which compiles you know, medical statistics. The demand for psychiatrists went from the ninth most requested search a decade ago to the second most requested search last year. And I hate to be a libertarian in the middle of a sensitive conversation, but people talk about cutbacks. All these crazy people are out there running around because of all these cutbacks in, in government-provided mental health services. That's a big topic of conversation in New Hampshire. People don't understand that often the term cuts when it comes to government spending refers only to lower than anticipated budget increases, right? So department budgets go up and up and up every year. It's a cut if the percentage of increase doesn't reach a certain amount. So the cry in the midst of all these cuts is for more government. And more government creates more restrictions. There's a really good article on Mises. If you want to read it, it's by Logan Albright, and it's called How Government Helped Create the Coming Doctor Shortage. And it talks about regulatory impediments to providing these services, supply-side problems. But that shortage is very real. But what's sad is there's your solution when you're taught to outsource your thinking, your problem-solving entirely to authorities. Psychiatry, which more often than not results in prescriptions to drugs and no further actions. Drugs that often appear in the background of a lot of these incidents, like the one we saw in Parkland. Now, I'm a big fan of psychology. Psychology is mental, emotional, behavioral. Psychiatry is medical. It's about changing brain chemistry. And unfortunately, I've seen the results of that in both my professional and personal life. These drugs barely make a dent in things like depression for a lot of people. But it's what the authorities have supplied primarily as the answer. And if you're depressed and your motivation is sapped, then you'll justify the rest stop as the destination. I've heard this. I've seen this. And the mental and physical health consequences that some of these drugs had for students often got in the way of more mentally healthy lives. So we're not going to deal with mental health at all in this conversation, right? Because that's even harder to understand than guns. It's part of our theme here at CNN, or at Never Again, of avoiding real causes. 
because it blurs the line so much between good and evil, and that's not what we're trying to do. All violence begins with disconnection. It progresses through loneliness. Sometimes it concludes with guns. Whether guns exist or not, whether guns are available or not, that process inside a person's head still unfolds. So the CNN discussion and the larger discussion that Town Hall represents basically boils down to how do we get the killers to choose another weapon? Right? Because if they choose another weapon, that signals a political victory. Because after all, this is a play that we're putting on, you see? The irony was not lost on me, and I'm certainly not suggesting that it was intentional that the CNN YouTube video of the town hall was the exact length of the average Hollywood movie, or the most desirable length of a Hollywood movie. No conspiracy theory, and it actually kind of suggests something else. I'll get to that in a minute. But yes, this is very much a play. This is a formula. It has a three-act structure. It's very clear who the good guys are and the bad guys are, and we'll have our happy ending. We don't want a story that has complexity. We don't want a story that has unanswered questions, unsolved problems. We don't want any shading or ambiguity when it comes to the morality of the protagonist or any sort of exploration of the evil of the antagonist. In the whole youth struggle genre here, we're not doing a clockwork orange. We're shooting more for like Teen Wolf, right? We got Scott, we got Boof, we got Styles. We have the basketball team, the Beavers, and they have to beat Nick and the Dragons. And we've got 100 minutes to accomplish this. Plenty of mental health services exist, but they're not effective because they're not continuous and they're not patient motivated. So you have people who have sort of like acute emotional psychological crises. And then you have people who have more chronic psychiatric disorders. But there's so many people in between who go through those years feeling disconnected, having an unmet need for like meaningful personal relationships. Like me, like I would have been if I were a child today, having my same childhood experience in the second decade of the 21st century. Because I don't have a diagnosable emotional or mental problem. I mean, today I would probably have a bunch, but 30 years ago, all of these diagnoses weren't available. And because I had never acted out like in a really specific, shocking kind of way, I just fell through a crack as far as a young man needing some help and just grew up feeling kind of disconnected from other people and from myself. But these kids are growing up in an age of disconnection. And again, back to ignored underlying causes, school only exacerbates this. And so there's just going to be more and more people in that situation. And government mental health searchers and services, especially the poor ones that are getting a 7.2% budget increase instead of the anticipated 9.4% budget increase from one fiscal year to the next, they're not going to be able to keep up with this no matter how much money you give them. And it doesn't even matter anyway. The improvement of mental health has to be a self-directed process. But all of this is ignored, right? By the most vocal people in this conversation, all of this is ignored to pursue the actual focus, more power. Uh, in private conversations, I've been talking about something. I've just been calling it the Trump funnel, right? That's where all of this leads. That's the target in the end. And look, I'm not bringing this up as any kind of defense of Trump. I hope that goes without saying. I, I really think that at this point, like 14 months into this whole presidency, I can join hands with both Alex Jones and Keith Oberman, and we can proclaim together that Trump sucks shit. So I just want to make sure there's no misinterpretation about why I'm bringing this up. But 
The first way Trump was targeted, I mean, Trump is targeted explicitly, constantly by CNN, but there's a lot of more covert. I mean, this should be obvious to people in this audience, but I just want to bring up a couple of examples from it since he's been elected president. The first attempt was the Women's March. In fact, the March 14th walkout at public schools was organized by the same people. So it's to create the illusion of a grassroots movement and start funneling people down to some kind of voting result. The real time with Bill Maher conversation that he had with two of the kids from uh, Never Again, uh, Cameron Kasky and David Hogue, follows the exact same funnel formula. Conversation opens with emotion, the survivors of a tragedy, right? So everybody's going in the funnel at that point. Everybody's on the kid's side. And once that happens, about halfway through the conversation, it shifts from emotion to policy. What are we going to do about this? And finally, at the bottom of the funnel, at the end of the conversation, Bill Maher informs these two young boys that, guys, this is just a condition of Trump's America. So destination, there was an opinion piece in the New York Times, I think a couple of weeks ago, why we should lower the voting age to 16. And then, of course, you have people pointing out that there seems to be kind of a contradiction here. The voting age is going down, but the gun buying age is going up. They're calling for both of these things simultaneously. Ah, the New York Times op-ed solves that problem. Third paragraph, skeptics will no doubt raise questions. I'm sorry, I don't need to uh, editorialize even further here. I'm just going to read it in a regular voice. Skeptics will no doubt raise questions about the competence of 16-year-olds to make informed choices in the voting booth. Aren't young people notoriously impulsive and hot-headed? Their brains not fully developed enough to make good judgments? Yes and no. When considering the intellectual capacity of teenagers, it is important to distinguish between what psychologists call cold and hot cognition. Cold cognitive abilities are those we use when we are in a calm situation, when we are by ourselves, and when we have time to deliberate, and when the most important skill is the ability to reason logically with facts. Voting is a good example of this sort of cognition. Studies of cold cognition have shown that the skills necessary to make informed decisions are firmly in place by age 16. In many circumstances, I would agree with this. By that age, adolescents can gather and process information, weigh pros and cons, reason logically with facts, and take time before making a decision. Amen. Teenagers may sometimes make bad choices, but statistically speaking, they do not make them any more often than adults do. Hot cognitive abilities are those we rely on to make good decisions when we are emotionally aroused, in groups, or in a hurry. If you are making a decision when angry or exhausted, the most critical skill is self-regulation, which enables you to control your emotions, withstand pressure from others, resist temptation, and check your impulses. Unlike cold cognitive abilities, self-regulation does not mature until about age 22, research has shown. Parenthetically, this is a good reason to raise the minimum age for purchasing firearms from 18 to 21 or older, as some have proposed. Kabam. So see, like, shooty-shooty gun stuff? That's hot-headed and crazy and impulsive and irrational. Politics, on the other hand, that is a territory for calm and well-measured folks. As we've all learned from watching Democratic politicians at Never Again rallies and at this march over the weekend and from watching the CNN town hall, politics isn't emotional. It's cold cognition. About two weeks ago, Tucker Carlson, who I'm also not a big fan of, but I think he's doing an important service on television. I think he has actually replaced Real Time with Bill Maher as the most important and sophisticated debate show on television, which still is not saying much. March 14th, he's interviewing a gun control activist named Igor Volsky, who's part of an organization called Guns Down America. The conversation opens and Tucker tries to introduce a premise. And first of all, I should say, like, Volsky's point of view is that, look at the children. Isn't it time we turn it over to them to lead? 
So Tucker's premise is like, okay, how far do your plaudits for teenage political participation extend? Is it any political participation that you would praise or just certain types? Now, this guy, Igor, he squirms and squirms and squirms literally for minutes trying to avoid answering this question. Now, if you've ever done this, this is true of both sides of the political spectrum. If somebody has their feet firmly planted on the right or the left, and you do this exercise with them where you say, okay, let's take the logic that you're applying to this current situation, and I just want to show you what it looks like in another situation. That does not go over well, and uh, this interview is no exception. So finally, there's like some acknowledgement of what Tucker Carlson is trying to do. I actually marked time codes because it was amazing how quickly this guy, Igor Volsky, took his goalpost and moved it from behind the end zone to the 50-yard line. Three minutes, three seconds into the conversation, he says that, you see, what these students are doing is what their teachers want them to do. Think critically. Tucker presses him. He is good at that. 56 seconds later. He's retreated to, these kids are victims of gun violence, and quote, they believe this in their gut. Which is, and you'll know this if you've been listening to this show for a while, different than critical thinking. Believing something in your gut and critical thinking, not synonyms. I bring this interview up because it's kind of a microcosm of the treatment of children we've seen over the last couple months related to this whole issue. Good job, kids. You're thinking critically. You're the rational voice on this issue, right? You know, I mean, I don't feel like I have anything to say about you know, the exploitation of children that at this point in this discussion isn't like trite and worn out. But I actually think there's something especially cruel for people who claim to have the well-being of children as a priority or for people who call themselves educators to be providing young people the illusion of knowledge giving them select pieces of a very complex issue and telling them that that is the complete picture, that now you have wisdom, when what you're really producing is fear, anger, and misunderstanding, all covered up by this illusion of comfort that this is the right and only way to feel about this issue, which also makes them particularly hostile to anybody else who might come in and say, hey, kids, I'm worried you don't have the whole story here. Like, I can understand a person's, a teacher's desire to use that platform to encourage students to have their viewpoint. I know from experience that that's like a really difficult responsibility to manage sometimes, especially when you're really, really passionate about something. But they shouldn't be turning the schools into the allegory of the cave, I guess, any more than they already are. Dad. Brett. Well, God damn it. I hesitated pursuing this as a topic because I feel like the task of criticizing and deconstructing what we're seeing right now in the mainstream media on the gun issue with these kids is like slow pitch softball batting practice. It's extremely transparent. And I've been saying to myself, why should I report to my audience the obvious thoughts that are already in all of their heads? Yeah, I suppose. But you don't want to get complacent about this, especially when it's such a mass phenomenon. I mean, you have so many people. God, the picture, I saw a picture that looked like there could have been a million people there. 
it, that's, just in Washington. Yeah, it's like this is the thing that the kids mobilize for. There's there's some frustration in that. I was looking at how easy it was to deal with as a story, like in a critical way. You know, then I started thinking about there's lots of thad themes in what's happening right now. I was reminded of a show that we did, I think, about six months ago after Charlottesville. You explained political action as a kind of stage in that show. And I was wondering if you could just repeat that idea for people who might be unfamiliar, because I certainly think we're seeing a lot of it again in this situation. Right. I think I said that American politics is a very small number of actors performing a play, a morality play on a very small stage in front of a massive audience. And Charlottesville is a good example of this. So in Charlottesville, you had, what, two or three hundred protesters, and then you had a few hundred counter protesters, uh, you know, certainly fewer than a thousand people who are actually directly engaged in the political performance there. Yeah. Uh, but everybody in the country was watching it. Everybody. And most of the people who watch it you know, and this is true for politics generally with Americans, unfortunately, the vast majority didn't know the first thing about any of it, right? They just right. saw, they know that Nazis are bad and racists and racists are bad and Confederates are racist and bad. And that's, those were Nazis and racists and therefore they were bad. And that's pretty much it. And I'm, I'm sorry to say, I don't even think I'm exaggerating as to the ignorance of Americans on politics. I mean, as I said, like right off the bat, we just have to accept that the vast majority, I think it's going to be something like 90%. I don't know, but I would, in, in my experience, that's about right. It might even be higher. 90 to 95% of Americans really don't know or care about politics in any way, uh, the way that we do. I mean, and this is nothing new. This is something that intellectuals have been talking about for a long time, anti-intellectualism in American life. Right. We're just making observations. We're not being elitists. Look, first of all, I don't think that the life that I lead as an intellectual is better. In fact, often I think it's inferior. I am mostly envious of people who don't walk around pissed off all the time about politics. <laughs> but being an intellectual is not a prerequisite anymore for being pissed off all the time about politics. And that's that's actually why I brought up this yeah. stage idea, because in the Charlottesville show that we did last fall— you talked about it as a small stage with a small group of performers. Now, with what's happening with these mm. marches, with these walkouts, we're talking right. about a pretty large stage with That's, hundreds of thousands, yeah. if not millions, of uninformed performers. That's a good point. Although I guess I would say, hmm, I guess I would say that the people who show up to these marches, the Women's March and this one, what was it called? March for? The March for Our Lives. March for our lives, not March for life. That's the <laughs> that's the other side of the aisle. Um, I would say that the people who showed up for those marches, who participated, I mean, I don't know. This is just speculative. But, you know, my guess is that the vast majority of them weren't really performing. They were just there. You know, they weren't really doing the stuff, the performance. OK, it's the people on stage. It's the people who organized them. It's the media who blast out f coverage of these things constantly. I mean, I, they're sure there's a little bit of performing going on. I suppose they could, you could call them actors to some extent. I mean, obviously their bodies are there visible on the stage, the political stage, but it's the, it is the most shallow superficial, um, 
engagement one can have, I think, mm-hmm. as an activist, yeah. um, as a political as a political actor, I should say. But yeah, you're right. I mean, it's a good point. I, it's yes, it can become the the small stage of American politics can become bigger. I just suppose it's sort of like when the audience <laughs> actually it's funny. This reminds me of on New Year's Eve this year, uh, we went to um, a performance by Pink Martini at Port in Portland, which is Pink Martini is like NPR's favorite band. You know, they're known for being cross-cultural and it's like got nine or 10 members in it. And they're sort of like, you know, represent all these different ethnicities and they're gay. Multiple drummers kind of situation. Yeah. I mean, but they play cool music, actually. They play um, Parisian, what's it called? Chanson music. It's it's like cabaret music. I actually love it. It's great. And it's back like from the Weimar period with the kind of sort of jazzy stage music that was played during Weimar, mm-hmm. which is fantastic and politically actually really cool. But anyway, so we're there and it's this huge theater in Portland, thousands of people there. And at one point they start to play Helen Reddy's, um, oh my God, what was it called? I am woman. I am, I am woman. The theme of the second, uh, second wave feminism. Right. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, I just thought, oh God, here we go. And sure enough, hundreds, hundreds of women from the audience marched onto the stage and locked arms and swayed back and forth singing, I am woman, as if this was some brave, this act of courage against this oppressive power. It's almost like trip words. You know, you hear it like in the Manchurian candidate when the agent goes up, the handler goes up and whispers something into the sleeper's ear and it just activates them. You know, you see so much of that, like people just responding to the emptiest of talking points or gestures or triggers. Yeah, it was this this idea that upper middle class white women in Portland, Oregon in 2018 are <laughs> oppressed right. are oppressed by anybody. And yeah, it was tough. But no, my point there was about I think that the march this last weekend and maybe the women's march too was sort of like they were broader or bigger versions of that, you know. This very superficial. It's also transitory they these people don't remain active politically they right. don't go home and then read a book <laughs> about about what they were just protesting about i think that's probably true so for a minute here or there like when trump gets elected oh sure they're in the streets and they're shouting and they're super political and they're all over facebook but you may have noticed that they don't really talk about how Hitler has taken the White House lately. You know, they kind of forgot. They stopped talking about immigrants and how Trump is going to be oppressing immigrants. That just doesn't get talked about anymore. Right. So I don't, they're not serious people politically. They're just not. I mean, and that's not in itself a bad thing. It just sucks if you're like us and want to talk about politics and more importantly, want to change politics. And so there's just a mass, you know, most of the population in the place where we live just will never really, they're never going to be a receptive audience. So I do think the stage basically is always going to be small or at least in the foreseeable future, unless they're, you know, cultures can change. American culture can change. It's thing is it's been like this since really the beginning of America. Um, Richard Hofstetter wrote classic book in the 1950s called anti-intellectualism in American life. I, I, I think it's actually more like non-intellectualism, than anti-intellectualism. Yeah. And there's actually, there's something really pernicious about it in this case. And I'm sure this has gone on all kinds of times uh, throughout the latter half of the 20th century and this century. And maybe I missed, maybe before I was doing this show and, you know, trying to pay attention to these things, maybe I missed a bunch of occurrences of this. 
But you know, I found there's something ironic about the, the hashtag they're using, right? It's enough or enough is enough. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking like, all right, well, this is a kind of activism towards a political end. What would be enough here? What would be the situation where these kids who are marching or the people who are, who are leading them or persuading them are saying, yeah, that's enough. That's as far as we need to go with this one. You know, and without leaning on like a slippery slope argument here, I don't want to do that. But I think there's a historical precedent with like this kind of left wing movement. There's never going to be a shortage of teenage angst mm -hmm. for, you know, the political and academic left to harness. And the right has never really figured out how to harness this because conservatism, that's like for older people. But, right. you know, it's, so, so it's interesting that hmm. how far is this going to go or how many times can this be recycled into the future? Because you have yeah, I was talking in my most recent show with this guy, Blake Bowles, about feeling really encouraged and then immediately discouraged by what I was seeing because we're seeing kids be self-assertive act purposefully. They want to stand up to what they think power is or what they think corruption is, but it's immediately redirected into the status quo. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting to psychologize. I mean, I, I, you got to do this carefully, but I do think it's important sure. to give it a try. I mean, so everything I'm going to say about the possible psychology of this particular protest and this particular movement, but I think it's important to give it a shot. Let's 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 throw some theories out here. Sure. I'm just trying to think think through this particular issue also, right? This is a it's this a lot of this is particular to the guns issue. Um yeah, what is it that's that's really driving people here? So we have intense drama of and tragedy presented to everyone of the sh shooting of children, right? Mm -hmm. killing of children. It's the worst thing that can happen in the world. We all agree. Um, right. and then, okay. So it's then from there, right. Attributing cause blame for this is the interesting next step, right? So feeling horrible about children being shot to death, that's going to be nearly universal. Okay. From there though, the next step is not right. There are many, many different steps one can take from there, from that feeling as to, you know, going to cause and motive and intention and fixing the problem. So going from the, these people, we do know this, these people by and large, from what we can tell, went from feeling bad about a, children being shot to death in school to the assumption that the NRA is directing policy and enabling these horrible things to happen, right? They go straight to, by paying politicians, Yeah, right? That's, I think that was the main analysis and argument being made, certainly by all the Parkland kids and, uh, you know, the CNN town hall, which I watched, I think the entire thing, I mean, that was, that was really their argument. That's the argument they've been making, right? Is that the NRA pays these politicians to allow for loose gun regulations, which allows for people to do things like shoot up schools. Yeah. Yeah. Marco Rubio got like $9,900 from them, which is obviously more important to him than kids' lives in his own state. Right. Right. So let's unpack that, though. Like what now for those of us who know anything about politics, <laughs> we know that the NRA is certainly an important, wealthy lobbyist that spends quite a bit of money on 
politicians, but how do they rank even? I'm not sure. I'm not even sure they're in the top 10. Are they no, among I lobbyists? Th I don't think so. No. Whereas I think three or four, maybe five or six unions, trade unions are in the top 10. At least they were last time I checked. Right. Uh, and then there's, you know, there's just a bunch. And of course the defense contractors are always up there. Actually, no, I take that back. Defense contractors are not that high up. I just found that out. They, it's amazing. They actually spend very little on lobbying, which is quite something. I mean, they don't have to, in other words, right? <laughs> they have sort of a built-in lobby. Right. But you understand the NRA, I mean, you understand this, but I want everyone to understand that the NRA also has this kind of lightning rod appeal because they're representative of a certain type of American, yes. a gun yes. toter, a bitter yeah. clinger. Um, there's lots of mm -hmm. implications there about who that kind of person would vote for, what party they would be in. Uh, what kinds of unenlightened attitudes they would have that runs much deeper, right? The NRA well, is just sort of the handles on that whole thing. You know what? I don't actually hear that much now. I don't hear gun owners, the evil gun, the, the, the evil people behind these tragedies as being rednecks, right? I hear what I hear is the NRA is rich. It's about money. It's about paying off politicians. Yeah, so this is like the truth to power. I told you right. before that, you know, Al Gore's reboot of An Inconvenient Truth, the subtitle is Truth to Power. So again, harnessing that that rebellious, energetic spirit of teenagers to do what? To, to promote United Nations climate <laughs> change regulations? Well, but yeah, but hold on, though. So so I'm just thinking through this here. Yeah. You know, the the old the stereotype of the gun owner in the liberal in the liberal mind, the stereotype of the gun owner is not a rich person. Right? That's a redneck. However, I think this is changing. This discourse, this image in their minds is changing because now it is it is this very very wealthy omnipotent shadowy organization called the NRA. It's not there's no longer rednecks running around in pickup trucks right that's in their minds so much i mean that's at least i'm just going on what i've been hearing from them in the last several weeks right it's it's about for them it's about the very wealthy actually controlling the country that's the that's the base analysis interestingly it is a form of populism this is sort of a you might call it a left-wing populism sure right the idea that the very wealthy and powerful are running things and that the people uh, are left out of the democratic process and that they are oppressed by their lack of uh, access to the halls of power, et cetera. So it's, a, it's a actually different, it's an interesting discourse going on here. There is something that unifies, I think, progressive and left-wing thought is a hatred of wealth and especially the use of wealth, um, the selfishness that they perceive, right? Wealth is always perceived as being selfish, selfishly derived. And that, I know for sure, sets people off on the left more than anything else. So here's, the, for instance, the prison issue, mass incarceration issue. You may have noticed that what infuriates people on the left more than mass incarceration itself is the fact that there are a handful of private prisons that there are some people, even though it's only five or 4% of the prison population is in a private prison, doesn't matter. The fact that there are some people making a profit on this is what drives people crazy. They don't pay attention to the fact that the top 10 biggest and worst prisons in the country are 100% state owned. Right. 
what really, if you followed this issue at all, I'm not making this up or exaggerating. That is what they just can't stand. That's what drives them crazy. They rail against private prisons over and I'm like, it's, it's a minor, minor part of the whole issue here, people. But what drives people on the left nuts is other people making money. They can't stand it. They really, really can't stand it. And so that I think is actually now what's at the center of this, the gun issue, this idea of the NRA getting rich and then politicians getting rich from the NRA, all of them selfish. It's this selfishness, this idea of selfishness that, that drives people crazy. So there's this vague discomfort in the NRA, Marco Rubio, Dana Loesch, who's part of the NRA. That's something like specific, some kind of embodiment of something that's more vague that all of this energy can be pointed at. Like that's your target, run towards that mm -hmm. thing. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. You have to personify that. You have to make the devil real. Mm -hmm. So you have to, you have to find a, an actual human being to stand in for the devil. So yeah, yeah, that's what, that's what they're doing too. Right. That's all, you know, calling out people, you know, and again, I just want to make it really clear. I could give not even half a shit for any of these politicians that they're attacking. Um, but I just find it interesting their choices, right? So they, the kids at least are talking about how the politicians are not doing their jobs and the politicians have failed us and the politicians are our employees and we need to make the politicians do what we want. But it's obvious that they're not talking about Democrats. Well, and also that's what I was speaking to with the encouragement, all this energy, and then the discouragement, same goddamn thing. And if right. I could just insert this. This might seem like a complete change of subject, but I think it's related. I said we have bad mm -hmm. themes, but there's a couple of school sucks themes as well. Sure. One of them being conspiracy theories. We love those and we entertain them wherever possible, wherever appropriate. Mm. But when the Parkland thing happened, as is often the case in, in these mass tragedy type events, you know, the crisis actor conspiracy theory appears. And it was centered mm -hmm. this time around this guy, uh, Hogue, this kid, Hogue, who's become kind of like the leader of this because he appeared in two news stories on different sides of the country within like six months to a year of each other. So people said clearly he's some kind of um, news actor. It's the other side saying, we see you're stupid and we'll raise you, I think, a lot of the time. And then they kind of invent, you know, they go this confirmation bias route and try to invent this whole story that backs up this conspiracy theory. But I think there's actually something important in it, that there's a recognition of there being a synthetic quality to the, to the management or the presentation of these events. But it's such a shortcut in thinking, you know, actors aren't needed in this kind of a situation. And this kind right. of speaks to what you were saying as well. Like these are kids, as far as that energy is concerned, who spent years trapped in a classroom doing purposeless work, mm -hmm. feeling most of them, you know, 16, 17 years old, feeling physically like adults will stuck in an environment where they're still managed like children. And suddenly they're given this opportunity. And this is just me. You know, I was super, super frustrated by a lot of what I was seeing. That Bill Maher interview where he interviewed the two kids was infuriating. But just trying to step away from that and step into their shoes. Suddenly these kids who've been stuck in this place where they feel like their lives and their actions don't matter are given this opportunity for self-assertion, for purposeful action, which comes with endless praise on a national stage. Mm -hmm. What scrutiny of the agenda should we expect from them? You know, when it goes to kind of jumping from being scared or upset about people getting killed to targeting the NRA and like all the critical thinking that was missed in between, like what scrutiny of what's going on here should we expect? What suspicions about their role as props, and I hate to call them that, should we expect them to recognize? 
you know, if I if I were 17 or 18 years old and becoming politically active, like this happened to me when I was 20. If somebody gave me this opportunity to to make what I thought was a difference, I would ask right. very few questions about what I was doing and why. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I've been thinking about my own childhood, right? Because I was, of course, raised in a very political family, at least when I was a child. I mean, my parents were full time professional revolutionaries when I was born and they didn't really leave the movement until I was in high school. So I was 100 percent engulfed in a an ideological world. You know, everybody, all their friends were comrades who had basically the same ideas. And that's that's all I knew. And it's very much like being raised in a church, you know, by a, a family that are, you know, active members of a church. I think it's the same thing. And I think that's what was going on this last weekend. And I think with Parkland generally is these kids were raised by parents who have a particular worldview and they now it's pretty clear that a lot of the parents, at least at this March, are actively indoctrinating their kids and actively coaching them. I mean, there's no doubt you can look just look at the signs, you know, that were carried by some of these children. There's just no way that they wrote those signs. And the penmanship alone tells you that, they, that the, the adults wrote them. And some of the speeches that were given at the march, there was this one girl who was kind of the star of the whole thing. Eleven year old, 11 year old um, African-American girl from Alexandria, Virginia. I hate to have to do this. I just, I hate that I have to do this. I started Googling because I needed to figure out who her parents were. <sighs> and it took me about 15 minutes to figure out. I don't know if anybody else has reported on this. I, I didn't, I was going to tweet it, but I just didn't want to do it. I just, but it's important. I Googled it. So she was born in Ethiopia, this girl, and she was adopted by a white woman who is one of the major political consultants in DC who has a business and a major part of the business is teaching politicians and, and corporate executives how to quote communicate effectively. <laughs> so that 11 year old girl, you know, I don't think she's different than I was in a way. I mean, in other words, I think her though, the ideas that are in, are in her head are her ideas because they're in her head, but we also need to acknowledge that they're, the reason they're in her head is because of who her parents are. And that was a very deliberate project. I mean, this woman went to Africa to get this child, <laughs> you know, and then basically, hey, I don't know, but it sure looks like she created that child for a very particular purpose. Right. Um, wow. So my parents didn't do, thank God, they did very little of that. I don't remember much of any sort of direct indoctrination, but they didn't need to. They didn't need to. I, it's like, again, it's like being in a church. You just know what's right just from hearing the adults around you talking and watching how they behave. You know what's right and what's wrong. And that's very much how I thought about the world. I just, it was my default. I would just sort of check against what my parents thought whenever there was some political issue at hand, you right. know, and that, that's how I would judge things. On that, speaking of speeches not written by children and given at this event, did you see Martin Luther King's granddaughter? No. Oh, okay. So this this was very similar. She couldn't have been more than six or seven years old. Mm. And she gets up there and she says, my grandfather had a dream that his children mm. would, you know, and then she explains that. And she goes, today, I have a dream. And then she says the hashtag enough is enough. And everyone cheers. 
I mean, that's just re- that seems very exploitative to me. Why? Because you know you're talking about somebody who's 11 who might not mm-hmm. have a full understanding of what they're doing. And I, I do have a bit of a problem with a lot of the right wing talking points on this that. Uh, you know, this is the exploitation of children. I think it's insulting. I think it's kind of a leftist idea that people are stupid and need to be protected from themselves and negative influences. So I don't like hearing people like Ben Shapiro or other, you know, Tucker Carlson make that argument about kids who are 16 and 17 years old. But kids who are between the ages of six and 11, that's a kind of different story. And putting a six-year-old up at this pivotal moment to use her grandfather, mm-hmm. right? Um, somebody who yeah. was killed, somebody who was killed with a gun, mm-hmm. uh, what, six to 50 years ago? And to give this speech to get a hashtag out when she's 16, when she's 26, is she going to look at that footage and say, wow, I cheapened the legacy of my grandfather by doing that? So first of all, Martin Luther King's house in Atlanta was full of guns. This is well documented. I've written a couple of pieces for reason on this very topic. There's several very good books on this. This is very well known among historians. Civil rights activists across the South during the 1950s and 60s relied on guns to protect themselves. Obviously, right. Yeah, and this is well known. And yeah, so so that's the idea that Martin Luther King was somehow uh, a great proponent of gun control is absurd. And oh, that part doesn't even matter. That sh- that suggestion oh, doesn't even need to be made. All that has to be said is his name. Yeah, it's like saying Jesus. I know. There's right. no difference. Yeah. I have a gut reaction to the use of children in that way, similar to yours. It it disgusts me. <laughs> I am super careful with my own son because I'm so political. You know, I have always been aware of this, that whenever I don't want to indoctrinate him. And so it's... Whenever I start talking about politics, I say to him, you know, repeatedly, Toby, this is my, this is just my idea. This is just my opinion. This is just my argument. Mm-hmm. You, you need to know that there's other ways of thinking about this. In fact, here are some other ways of thinking about it. And for anybody who's ever been with me in a classroom, whether at Renegade University or one of the so-called normal universities where I taught before, I mean, we'll know that I do that all the time when I'm teaching. I'll just, I'll say, look, I'm giving my argument. This is my argument. Here are some counter arguments. I'm not giving you the truth. I need you to know that right up front. In fact, I'm skeptical of everything I, I say myself. That's my gut reaction is that it's disgusting <laughs> to use a child as a political prop, to put them on stage, to fill them with he- their heads with ideas and then make them do your work, your political work, because you know that they will be invulnerable, that they will be what's the word? They, they will be, uh, immune. They can't from criticism. No one can criticize a child. So if you can get a child on stage speaking your political ideas, those political ideas will have a perfect shield. That's it. It's not a prop anymore. They're shields, you know, like ISIS uses children as shields when soldiers shoot at them. And I think that there's this kind of bait and switch going on with that too. Mm -hmm. These kids are trotted out. You know, we're kind of moving down the funnel here to let's lower the voting age because these kids are so inspirational. Like uh, David Hogue and Cameron Caskey are America's new thought leaders. These kids are on the cover of Time magazine, right? So we must listen. It's their time to lead. The Whitney Houston music starts to play. And then if they're criticized – and, you know, this actually will get us to more uh, more of your themes in a minute. But then when they're criticized, there's this immediate switch from them being the most inspirational and powerful people to being the innocent victims of gun violence. And how dare you for scrutinizing right. anything that they say? 
Yeah. So I just, okay. So I want to say something else though. I want to complicate this. I'm, I was trying sure. to complicate this. Fine. I think, <laughs> I think, I think that my gut reaction is not the one to stay with. I think that first of all, I think that parents are, should be treated as autonomous basically. Right. Don't we think that, I mean, I think mm-hmm. the parents course, should be allowed yeah. to raise their children however they want. I, can't help but feel bad for some kids, but my God, basically you're going to feel bad for all kids because there's no such thing as a parent who agrees with you hundred percent about how to raise children. Um, I don't think the kids on stage at that March were any different than the kids who get on stage at church on Sunday. I don't think they were essentially different than I was when I was that age. Um, in that we simply, we absorb the idea ideology, the culture, the way of talking, the way of thinking, the worldview of our parents and their friends and our family. And then we spout it out when we're children. And I think, I'm sure if that girl, that 11 year old Ethiopian girl were asked, you know, why did you do this? She would say it was my idea. And I wouldn't, I don't even think, I I bet that's true. I bet it was her idea. I wouldn't be surprised. Now, I want to say that's it's re- actually is up to her mother to do whatever she wants. She can go adopt a kid from whatever part of the world she wants and then bring it back to bring the kid to America and then fill the kid's head with her own ideas and then send them out into the world to spout those ideas. This is nothing new. As I said, you know, religious people have been doing this for millennia and uh, political people of all stripes have been doing this, right? This is what we do. This is what people do generally speaking. So, I say, let that go, <laughs> let go of our feelings of disgust about that and focus on what the real problem is, which is the way that the rest of the population responds to these children when they speak. Right. right. Yeah. I mean, it is frustrating, though, that to see like kids who are young and s- still have the priorities of pleasing and impressing and getting praise from adults like that energy, that motive being harnessed. At, at these rallies, but also and the same was true. I mean, I first noticed this at the Wisconsin teachers protests against Governor Scott Walker in 2011. And they weren't trying to take people's rights away. They were just trying to, like, not have to pay into their pension. But it was the same idea with very little children who wanted to please adults, who wanted a pat on the head, who wanted to be, uh, you know, special or important being harnessed. And also at the same time, they're harnessing the rebellious energy of the teenagers, of the kids who, who don't want to take it anymore. So everybody is, you know, all that energy is being used in this thing. I mean, it's yes. okay. so it's totally intellectually it's dirty pool. No doubt about it. Right. right? I mean, um, but again, so I would say that's that's on us, though. Right. That's on everyone else who's watching this. It's about how we respond to that. And that's the problem. The problem is not that these kids were on stage and these kids are saying these things and even that their parents are Machiavellian puppet masters. No, no, absolutely. Right. The problem is the way the rest of America responds to it. Right. And that's what we need to be focusing on. So it's like, yeah, go ahead. You can, you can go get your kid and give them these ideas and write their sign for them and take them to that March. But that doesn't mean that I have to take anything that kid says seriously at all. Even if they were in the room when the shooter was going crazy in Parkland, even, even if they were really were a survivor We have this principle, at least we used to in this country, that the victims of crime don't get to set policy, (laughs) that it's a very bad idea to let the victims of crime have any say over policy, over sentencing, over anything, anything at all, as a matter of fact, that would affect anyone else, including the accused. 
But now all of a sudden, right, we think that if you're the victim of these crimes, and of course, most of them weren't even victims or even survivors, but whatever, uh, that they have some special access to the truth about policy, about oh, what absolutely there should be. Now that's now that's not just in this case, right? This happens all the time. This is part of identity politics. This is part of you know what's called the oppression Olympics, right? It's amazing. I mean, I've seen this all the time on college campuses. There is simply an operating belief that black people know the truth of know the history of slavery more than other people do. I mean without ever having read a single book or article or word or anything about slavery, they have some, they have some access to the truth about what slavery was 200 or 300 years ago because they're black. It's really that it, and not just like they should be heard or their feelings should be appreciated because obviously there are residuals of something like slavery in oh no. uh, American politics. And it's, it's the actual like assertion that they have special knowledge Oh, sure. I've, oh, this, well, you might imagine this has happened to me many, many times, right? The idea that's being pushed is that there's a wisdom of victims, right? And I would say that the CNN town hall that happened weeks ago was the best example of this that I've ever seen on television. And I said yeah. to you before, it was basically like an hour and 45 minute accidental pledge drive for the NRA. I mean, that's what it will be. <laughs> that's the effect that I think it will have. Huh. But... You know, the people who are on the gun control side, uh, well, one of these incidents happens and a lot of people on the right stand up and they say, it's not time to talk politics. It's too soon. We don't, you know, we can't get into, you know, a policy discussion in this heightened emotional state. It was fine for them after 9-11, like the day after 9-11, the people on the right were all about policy discussions. So the people on the left argue against that. They say, no, this is the time. Now, of course, it's never the time to talk policy with in a heightened state of emotion. And people in that heightened state of emotion are not the people with any wisdom. So mm -hmm. they argue against that. They say at the CNN town hall, this is time to talk politics. This is time to talk about what the policy should be. So the show opens and it's a victim's montage with music. And then Jake Tapper comes out and says, OK, let's talk politics. Now that everybody's in a rational frame of mind. Let's see what we can do as far as policy is concerned. 14 minutes into the CNN discussion, it goes completely off the rails. One of the parents demands to Marco Rubio, the debate be framed in terms of guns being the cause, right? That we create this tunnel vision. That this is the only aspect we're here to talk about. You know, Rubio tries to explain, and I don't like Rubio, but it's... It, this situation put me in a position where I feel like I almost have to defend some of the stuff that happened. He's sure. trying to explain the problems with the current law as the CNN control room is cross-cutting between his explanation and people in the audience holding up pictures of shooting victims on their phone. So this is yeah. the policy. This is the rational policy discussion that is playing out on CNN. Yeah. Oh, yes. I, before I forget, we talked about this before. Um, but uh, to me, one of the major themes of what's going on here is the fetishization of children here. And mm -hmm. that's what you're talking about with the montage of victims and the wisdom of victims. So a child who was in a school where there was a shooter is a double victim in some ways, but they become sacred objects, right? Who, who are, who must be correct and who must be treated with absolute deference. Um, so the fetishization of children is going on in this culture, I think right now in a couple ways, both on the left and the right, there's a positive fetishization 
which is what's going on with Parkland and in this march. We think of the children as being these victims of shooting and therefore we need gun control and everything they have to say about guns is correct. And because children are the most important things in the world. On the other hand, then we have what I call negative fetishization from the right, which is usually taking place around college campuses, which is sort of the SJW fight, you know, the fight right. against the SJW. So, you know, every week or two, Christina Hoff Summers or Brett Weinstein or somebody shows up at a college campus and then five or 10 or 15 lunatic 19 year olds take over the building and shout things and throw pig blood or whatever they do. And then everybody in the media, every single media outlet covers it and amplifies it. Right. Mm -hmm. But that's a, that's a, that's a fetishization too. It's what both sides are saying is that what the most important thing in the world is, is what young people are doing on college campuses. That's the most important thing in the world. What 19 year olds think, what they think is, is absolutely essential in our civilization. Our civilization is determined by what they think and what they do. Right? Oh, I spent most it, of 2017 falling for this, you know, like, yes. I, and I found myself like drawn to these stories and like people in my audience will know I've backed away from this. And the great thing, like if you just refocus your attention, suddenly all of this identity stuff, it doesn't seem to matter almost at all. If you just refocus your attention, but if you immerse yourself in that world, it's very, sure. very stressful and very, very troubling. But I found myself almost searching for justifications like, okay, this is the, these are institutions of higher education and this is where thought mm -hmm. is disseminated from. And I thought, yep. you know, I had a good explanation that, you know, nobody was paying attention to what John Dewey and company were doing in the halls of academia a hundred years ago. And that's how we got these schools. And that <laughs> might be true that they weren't subjected to any criticism or scrutiny uh, and they were able to plan basically in secret. And I, a lot of things are carried out in secret in academia that way. But I don't know if this is like really the same crew, you know, like what yeah. we're seeing in the halls of higher education today. Yeah. I mean, so as you know, I mean, I was sort of famously outraged about campus political culture. You right. know, I've talked about it extensively. I think it was all totalitarian and horrible. And I haven't changed my mind about that one bit. What has changed for me is that about a year, about a year ago, I started my own university. Right. And mm -hmm started my own podcast and started to get my ideas out there much more efficiently than ever before, by the way, ever than I did in a college classroom. And I noticed that I stopped caring <laughs> about what went on in colleges. I, I just care less and less and less. And so now I think Christina Hoff Summers came to uh, the colleges right around where I am in Oregon a few weeks ago. And I, it's the same thing, you know, just what I said before, you know, five or six lunatic SJW showed up and screamed and everybody was talking about it in the media. And I just thought, wow, I, I don't care at all about either side in this. Yeah. This is so unimportant to me. And what's here more important, more importantly, what's unimportant to me now is what goes on at Reed College and Lewis and Clark College and Willamette University, it's just less important because I got my own thing. We, not just me, but a bunch of us, including you, we're just doing our own thing now. Right. We're doing our own education. We're doing our own speaking and talking and writing and scholarship and communicating. And we have way bigger audiences anyway than if we were college professors. And it just, I found one of the great effects of this just for me personally is that I don't carry around that constant grinding anger and frustration and fury about what goes on in these places because it's just, it becomes clear. Well, because now there is an alternative, right? I mean, that's the thing. 
before, maybe three or four years ago, there wasn't really another place to go. I mean, there wasn't another place to be an intellectual. You know, if you were, or a political person even, if you weren't a professor in the 70s or 80s or 90s, there just wasn't, it was very difficult to make a living at all doing what we do. Right. Um, and the, and the emotional that, payoff now. there is that you found serenity by spending more time in your own sphere of control. Yeah. yeah that's um, important. No, no one controls. I, no one controls what I say. I don't, and more, more importantly, it's not like they ever had direct control over me. There were only one or two attempts to censor me when I was actually teaching. Uh, but it's mostly, I, and this is a trip think for most professors, you know, I was always worried though, constantly policing myself. I was always worried that, that it would get out what I had said in the classroom and then I'd be called a racist or a sexist or a rapist or something. Right. right. And then there goes, there goes my reputation and then my career, uh, which is a totally intelligent fear to have. I mean, every professor should be afraid of that at all times, but I'm free of that now, you know? Um, what happens if it gets out what I said on my podcast and, you know, then they, and some at a Columbia university, it's, everybody's talking about how Thad Russell said this terrible thing about slavery on his podcast. I mean, it doesn't matter because they don't control my, my livelihood anymore. Right. And, and as I said, you know, my audience is about a thousand times bigger than it ever would have been at Columbia if I'd stayed there. So the fetishization of youth and children is a problem on the left and the right. That's what both sides are saying. They're both saying that the experiences of children is unique and sacred. Their ideas about their own experiences are unique and sacred, unassailable. They cannot be assailed. She should not be assailed. And the same is true for young people in their eight, who are 18, 19, 20, 21 on college campuses, right? The they are either sacred in what they say is their experience, I feel white supremacy, I feel violence against my body every day as a Yale student, whatever mm -hmm. it is, that must right, be right. considered to be the truth. Or it's just the opposite. They are crazy, terrible, stupid, and they are destroying this most important institution in our world, which is the university, right? That's the problem. And what we need to do is replace these crazy kids with the good kids. But both sides agree that the the sphere in which this all this stuff is happening is what is most important. And what you and I, I think, are saying and more importantly doing is just making that less and less true. Right. It's just less true, certainly for me personally and obviously for you personally. What happens in schools is just less important to me because we're just creating a whole alternative. Oh, know? there's lots of people working on that project right now. And that's definitely yeah, of course, really right. exciting. But the fetishization of children, I think, is underneath all of this in a way. I absolutely agree. I'd like to hit a couple more uh, fad themes, if we could, here. Sure. I said earlier in the conversation that these kids are getting national praise, and that means they're not really being critical or thoughtful in many cases about what they're doing. But obviously, there's critics in that national praise. The kids are aware of these critics, and they've been provided with a way of processing the criticism. And you can hear them say this in, in the interviews almost directly, not quite directly, but they're almost there to just blurting out there's people like us and there's people who don't care about children being murdered. Right. Like that's mm -hmm. the that's the dichotomy they're creating. And, you know, Rubio, again, stupid little Marco Rubio was kind of the uh, the rational star of the show with the CNN thing. His opening statement, I thought, 
um, with some of the most valuable content, he said, we're in this situation because people don't talk anymore. I don't think he even realized how true that is in so many different ways. But, mm -hmm. you know, as far as like people unfriending past friends because of who they voted for in the last election, like people don't talk anymore. So you've warned <laughs> on my show going back to 2014 about the dangers of absolutist thinking, right, which we see mm -hmm. a lot of mm -hmm. here. And also something that we first talked about when we did that academic conformism series last year, uh, Manichaeism. And yeah. mm -hmm. the mantra that these kids are running with you know, is I am fighting the battle right. against the darkness on the side of the light, which right. has a very yeah. appealing grandiosity to it. It'd be very, very attractive to um, a 17-year-old. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, it's another another distinctive and unfortunate, I believe, feature of American intellectual life or just culture, generally speaking. And again, I'm not the first person to mention this. You know, it's um, Americans are fundamentally Christian in their outlook. And I mean, sort of in a secular way, it doesn't Jews are just as Christian in the way they think about the world as as, as actual Christians. Um, there's Christian thought is Manichaean. So black and white, evil and good. Right. Mm -hmm. There's God and there's the devil. And you're either one or the other. And that's it. There's nothing in between. That's what Manichaeanism means. The looking, viewing the world through that particular lens of absolutes, absolute dark and absolute light, absolute good and absolute evil. And there's nothing in between. And more importantly, you are each person and each thing, each object, each idea, each thing in the world is attached to one or the other. And that's it. There is no, there is no complexity, no nuance. That is a very Western and in particular, uh, in particular, an American sort of assumption or, or uh, set of assumptions about the world. You know, Americans and, and Westerners generally love binaries, and this is one of the binaries. This is one of the great binaries in Western thought. It's a real problem, uh, especially if you're interested, again, in thinking through things and analyzing things. It's also moralistic so that some things are just good universally, absolutely, forever, in all places. And some some things are evil in just the same ways. And so there's no discussion to be had. Once you make the claim that something is good or bad morally, that's the end of the conversation. There's nothing more to be said. It's just like saying God exists. I can't prove that God exists or doesn't exist. In fact, I can't even mount an argument one way or the other. It's just It's just a leap of faith. It's just an assertion of faith. That's that's why I kind of laugh at all these new atheists who spend all this time and energy, you know, making these arguments about how God doesn't exist. It's like, guys, you, you've done exactly none of that. You've accomplished nothing. So what I like to say is, OK, you want to make a moral claim about something? That's fine. But now we're done talking. Well, you know, your mention of the new atheist actually brings up another one of your more popular themes that's certainly in play here. Once you make this divide and once you decide you're on the side of the light or you're on the side of the reason, then you are fully licensed to inflict shame on other people, right? We see sure. how much the new atheists do that. Yes. We see how much the left... I mean, I've been talking about this with libertarianism. That was an appeal mm -hmm. of, of libertarian thought because of the the moral arguments in libertarianism. If people don't buy into that, if people don't buy into the non-aggression principle, shame, mm -hmm. shame, shame, right? Mm -hmm. But we see yeah. the Manichaean layout here in this situation, especially with a lot of the talking points that these kids are using 
And it's all shame directed towards the mm -hmm. other side, whether it's oh, explicit yeah. or implicit. Yeah. And so this comes back to, again, what our focus should be. So I think I think it would be good for people on our on our side of this stuff to simply stop caring. Right. That's what I've been trying to say about the SJWs for a while now. And that's what I said in this just in this conversation, you know, that. The problem is not that there are crazy SJWs on campus, and the problem is not that there are these opportunistic right-wingers deliberately provoking them to make uh, names for themselves. The problem is that we care. We also care when they, when the SJWs on campuses or the children at the march on Saturday try to shame us. We care if they call us a racist or a sexist or whatever it is, or heartless because we support the second amendment, whatever it is, and their attempts to shame, it's our caring that is the problem. The problem is us, it's me. I have felt that, I have felt shamed. I have been afraid of feeling shamed. I've preemptively felt ashamed in the past. You know, I've, I've worried that someone might call me something and I've felt shame. <laughs> That's, I think, true for a lot of people, even people who are sort of hardcore, anti-SJW, anti-left wing, libertarian, whatever they are, conservatives. Any, you know, I think you can tell because of the amount of energy they devote to this, right? They really care. They care a lot. And that's so the problem is inside of them. Get over it. Whatever shame you have or fear of shame, you need to drop it. And once you do, they have no power. Once you stop feeling ashamed or even worried that they might shame you, it's that's true liberty. And that's it deprives them of all of their power. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I it's not easy. I'm not saying that you can just wake up tomorrow and stop caring when people try to shame you or call you a racist. But I do think it's quite possible. I think it's it can be done. I feel like I have started to do that myself in recent years. Certainly helps to have. um you know, a financial or economic basis, a career that is, isn't dependent on those people. That's certainly true. And I'm not going to say that it's easy for, you know, uh, a heterodox professor at a, at a major university these days to just stop caring about being shamed. But I think even they can care less. There's less in, and just, God damn it. Just be brave. <laughs> Just stand up. I mean, especially these tenured professors, my God, just stand up and say, no, I don't buy your argument. Where's the evidence for the claim you just made? That study that you cited? Let me see that again. I want to see the footnotes because the numbers don't add up to me, et cetera, et cetera. You just don't see it. This incredible amount of, they're so afraid of being ashamed, of being shamed. There's just, I know this is true for academics and I think it's true for the public in general, in general. I think Maybe this might be, though, the end result, the positive end result of social media. I actually think that because so many people get shamed every minute of every day, that I think each individual instance has less power. I don't know. There's like this a desensitization to it? We forget, right? There's so many acts of shaming. I've been thinking about people like celebrities, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago who were caught having an affair or, you know, was found out that they were gay, the Republican congressperson who was gay or whatever, you know, 
and how huge it was just so devastating. And I actually, even when I hated these people, I actually felt bad for them because it just had to be absolutely gutting, you know, what they went through. But now that happens every five minutes on social media to someone else. And we forget because there's just so much. The volume of it makes it impossible for any of these things to linger in our consciousness. Well, that doesn't sound like a good thing. That sounds like shame becomes the water in the fish tank and we're the fish, you know? Would you would you rather have your well, it's kind of hard to understand this, but like, would you rather have your search engine, your search history uh made put on the front page of the New York Times? now or 20 years ago yeah now it's much much better now much better now because even if it's just the most mortifying thing ever it's people will forget by tomorrow okay so you're saying <laughs> that the shame it's like a dilution right of of its power yeah okay all right yeah yeah and there's so much of it going on i think that also in some way on some level people are taking it less seriously. I, this is all speculative, but it certainly seems that way. But just based on the volume alone, you know, we can't care that much. Shame has less power now. But people want to be uh, engaged. All right. So, so there's this idea of not responding to shame or not being affected by shame, but people want to be engaged and they want to be responsive in a situation like this, right? So how do you not extend that to complete detachment or nihilism watching this parade go by? Like people oh, want, like easy. we want to respond to it. Easy. We have better things to do. But this is still happening. Like, <laughs> oh yeah, the left has a self-perpetuating system where they propose solutions that turn into mills that churn out new problems in need of more of their solutions. I'm just, I'm just saying, don't invest, avoid emotional investment in these things. Okay, of sure. course, we we need to be watching what's going on, and if there's any attempt to pass policy that would affect us. Of course, we need to be aware of it. We need to be criticizing it. But there's just so much emotional investment in all this stuff um, on both sides. I agree. And that balance just... is really hard to find, right? Like the, the complete detachment versus like the, the positive in control kind of engagement in this stuff, I think is something that people really struggle with. Here's what you do. <laughs> I think, I mean, you, you present your arguments against whatever it is that's happening. Okay. Coolly, rationally, in a detached way, but in an, an effective and powerful way, right? Make it as powerful as possible, the arguments. And then when you lose the argument, which you usually, that's usually what happens, then you walk away and you walk away as far as you need to walk. And I don't see any alternative. And that could mean literally walking out of the country in which you live ultimately, right? And so what we want also is always the creation of more and more choices, of places in which to live. Literally, literally. That's why I'm all for decentralization. I'm all for the devolution of power. I'm all for states seceding and everybody seceding so that I have somewhere else to go mm -hmm. or, or preferably many other places to go when David Hogg becomes president of the United States. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Right. So, and, but that's grim as hell. I'm not saying it's not grim, but I don't, I'd think that just getting railing and getting upset by what happens. First of all, it just ruins your life. Okay. I mean, I think that yeah, yeah, being, a, yeah. being a political person is not, it's not a happy life. Not at all. It's, it's for people who are unhappy. I think a lot of the time and looking for a justification for the unhappiness right now in my own life, this is partly what I'm doing. It's a big part of what I'm doing. I am trying to figure out how to be happy with myself while being a political person. And 
I have found some success lately. I am not all the way there yet, but I am much more mentally healthy than I've ever been. And I have not backed away from political engagement at all. I mean, just listen to what I'm doing or watch what I'm doing. Um, I just have found that I don't need to be invested. And just, just that knowledge, just knowing that I don't need to be emotionally invested the way that I was, or even at all, is liberating in itself. And it, it can make you actually be happier, just a happier person in the present. And you don't have to give up any of your principles. You don't have to be less politi politically engaged. I do recommend less time on Twitter. Sure. <laughs> um, yeah. But, but I, also, I also recommend staying on Twitter. I, I don't think it's a good idea to just turn your back on it. Um, but it's really about letting go, letting go of that emotional attachment, that wounded attachment to all that's going on in the world politically. I'm not, look, this is, I'm speaking to myself as much as to anyone else, but I just think that's the only way to go. And yeah, and create as many viable alternative spaces as possible for escape, for exit, because we don't want to participate. We don't want to have a voice. We want as many exits as possible. Right. We want as many escape, escape routes as possible. So just keep creating alternatives like what you and I are doing, what so many people who are listening do in their lives every single day. That's exactly right. That's exactly what you should be doing. Creating your own separate world, your own separate institutions, whatever it is. Um, and literally space your own space, physical space, and create as much of that as possible, encourage other people to do the same thing that, so that we have places to go when David Hogg sends the SWAT team to shut down our, um, you know, our property, our land, whatever it is. Um, and you just keep going forward in that way. I think that it's just a colossal waste of time and energy to get upset about these people and what goes on in these institutions that we don't care about. That's the thing. Here's the thing, Brett, you and I have known all along that we don't, <laughs> we don't want to care about what goes on at Harvard. Right. Well, mm, see, we this is the trick though, right? Because it's kind of a form of entertainment that you then go on to rationalize why it's important. And what well, you're describing that I totally agree with you. And honestly, like over the course of the last six months, sounds a lot like my life. Like I, one of the reasons why I went on that trip last October and probably one of the reasons why you encouraged me to do it, I was really trapped in the screen, you know, in the box going mm -hmm. on that kind of positive reinforcement schedule of Facebook and Twitter and really immersed in a world that ultimately I realized when I was out in, on the open road, none of that has much bearing on my life. And I mm -hmm. think that there's just this, this concern Right. I, I do absolutely believe operate with almost all of your time and energy in your own sphere of control. Right. And that's why I did that thing. But right. is there a rose colored glasses attitude to that where the libertarian world, let's say we all just keep doing that after the Ron Paul campaign collapsed in 2012, I started calling myself an ignorist, you know, that I was just going to ignore all of this shit. And then something mm -hmm. changed in 2015, 2016. This suddenly started to seem important. Uh, to me again, as if like, okay, well, if none of us are paying attention to this, if there's no watchers on the wall, politically or socially or academically, how far can this go? Well, well wait, so I'm not talking about not paying attention. I okay, do think yeah. paying attention is a very good idea. In fact, I think we should study things, you know, like a laser all the time. So here's, here's how I think about it. Um, how do you feel 
about the educational system in Korea, South Korea? It's a little competitive. Do you get do you get upset about it? I I got upset about it once. I think in 2012 <laughs> when we did a show about it. But I'll be honest, I haven't thought about it much since then. Are you angry about it? Are you frustrated? Do you feel like it's unjust? Do you are you are you upset about what happens to those poor children in the South Korean schools who are made to work 12 hours a day? Now that you're reminding me about it a little bit, but on a typical like day in day out basis, no, <laughs> I'm not. Right. So here's here's libertarian foreign policy basically applied to domestic politics. What libertarians think about foreign policy is, right? generally speaking. Uh, oh, well, that's for those people to decide. And I'm not, it's not my business. I, I will study the country so that I can know whether or not I ever want to live there. And it's a good idea to know if they really do pose a threat to me. Mm -hmm. But, but generally speaking, there's an emotional detachment, isn't there? How is that any different than what goes on at Harvard, right? Neither you nor I are at Harvard. We have no association with Harvard whatsoever. Really, I don't anymore. Um, you know, they don't affect us at all. It doesn't matter. We don't live there. They don't have any control, any power over us at all. There's no difference between what goes on at Harvard and what goes on in Bangladesh for us. Is there, and should there, there shouldn't be, my point is there shouldn't be, we can make it our business, right? We can care tremendously. We can think that, oh my God, the people in Bangladesh, they are, they are suffering under the oppression of a brutal dictator and we must do something about it and it's horrible and that we are responsible and for correcting it and changing it. We must do something. We must feel bad about it, first of all, so that we can change it. That's the first step. But to me, a libertarian personality is the opposite of that, is self-interested in a good way, which is that they simply don't make claims for and more importantly, don't have any emotional investment in other people. Outside, outside their world, of course, you can care and should care <laughs> about people who are actually in your life, who you actually know, who you actually live with. Sure, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people who you will never know, who have no direct association with you. I think that's just healthier. I think it's non-imperialist. I think it is, I think it's creates a better world, actually. So that's what I'm talking All about. All right, this you, is you interesting. We need to stop thinking, worrying, feeling, feeling, feeling about people who are not in our world. So you might be operating outside of a mental frame that I still might get stuck in or or get sucked back oh. into. Right. Oh, and I, I think it's too. collectivist, yeah. too. I think it's I think it's this yes. idea of yeah. the nation. The things that are happening in academia are eventually going to affect policy and policy is eventually going to affect me. I don't think that's irrational. I don't think that's paranoid. But, you know, I'm trying to design a life where I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, you know? And yeah, and like I doing, said, yeah. when I said, okay, I'm going to do whatever I want for however long I want, none of that stuff mattered to me. None of that stuff was a right. concern. My priority so, is me. My focus is me. Yeah, totally. So when you hear David Hogg speak on CNN next time, the best thing for you to do is to direct your attention, your focus, your mind to your next podcast episode. That's what I did. And we're doing it right now. Hello again. 
again, and thank you for sticking through all the way to the end. If you're enjoying the show that much, if you're getting value out of what you have been listening to, and you're getting value out of the curation of this material, please consider becoming a supporter in our unique value for value and then more value model where you become a patron through patreon.com slash school sucks. There are three different membership tiers. The entry level is called friend of school sucks. It's for people who support our mission and the way I deliver this message. At this and the other levels, you get access to a private RSS feed with tons of additional content, including serial bonus shows. The one that we are currently uh, doing most regularly is called The Discomfort Zone. It's a comedy-slash-personal-development show, and we are in our fifth season. I think there is a total of like 50 episodes of The Discomfort Zone, but there are other bonus shows that have run serially in the past. One is called In Pursuit of Utopia, which is a history show that I do with my good friend Danny McCarthy. And there is another one called Picture of the Month Club, which ran just for a limited time, but there's several of those shows, and it is a film appreciation conversation. You can also access University Discussion Groups. That is basically an ongoing bonus presentation, which are highlights from the many, many discussions. We do 12 a month in our private social media and learning community called the University. You can actually get access on a monthly basis by uh, subscribing on Patreon to the top tier, and you can give it a try for a couple months. Meet some like-minded people trying to uh, approach and solve similar problems. At any level, your support is greatly appreciated, but there's lots of ways you can help. Uh, one of the simplest things to do, you can enter Amazon through our portal. I hate Amazon, but if you are going to shop there, like I do sometimes, enter through our portal and we do get a little kickback. And I'm just saying, if everybody did it, I'd be rich. How exciting that would be. It starts with you right now. Bookmark that link, please. It is in the show notes. I do have uh, affiliate partnerships that I am much more proud of. Uh, chief among them is Praxis. Praxis is a college alternative, a college alternative for ambitious and entrepreneurial young people. Please enter through the link in our show notes so they know you heard about them on School Sucks. If you are the parent of a teen or you are a teen with the prospects of college on the horizon, please, please, please investigate Praxis before you start doing all the crazy crap that I did 20 years ago, 25 years ago. Good heavens. But again, enter through the link in the show notes or right at the front page of schoolsucksproject.com. You can also visit schoolsucksproject.com slash AV to see numerous uh, one-time support options. Or if you don't like Patreon, we do have some alternative uh, funding operations. But however you choose to show me that you are grateful for what we do here, I promise you will feel uh, my gratitude in return. So thank you so much. We'll be back in a couple of days with more.